0: This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 26.
1: If you apply what the strengths folks are encouraging to do, you know, put yourself in a position to neutralize your weaknesses, staff around them, focus on your strengths, all that sort of stuff, it flies right in the face of one of the biggest insights we know today about great executive leadership and how you become great. Continuous learning and the ability to deal with the unknown, untested, untried. It's probably the secret to long term success, especially in an ever shifting disruptive world like we're in today.
0: Why is being a versatile leader so important to your career success? How can you develop and scale future ready leaders for your organization? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Rob Kaiser, Rob is a renowned expert in leadership development and the president of Kaiser Leadership Solutions, a leadership consulting and assessment firm that is trusted by some of the most successful companies in the world. Starting his career at Center for Creative Leadership, Rob participated in some groundbreaking research that led him to conclude that versatility is the key to effective leadership. Next, as a partner in the executive development firm Kaplan-DeVries, Rob and his team pioneered innovative leadership assessments and deep dive development for C-suite executives, before the practice of executive coaching even had a name. Then in 2011, Rob and his business partner founded Kaiser Leadership Solutions and created a suite of assessment tools to help managers become the versatile leaders their organizations need. Rob's also the co-author of several books, including The Versatile Leader and Fear Your Strengths, What You Are Best At Could Be Your Biggest Problem. In my humble opinion, there are few people who know more about executive assessment and building leadership development programs that not only scale, but deliver results than Rob. I know you're going to enjoy our conversation as we discussed why being a leader now is more challenging than ever before, how leaders can develop empathy and why it matters, why the best leaders check in before they check on, how to improve your leadership versatility, and why you should focus on improving your weaknesses, not your strengths, and much more. Rob, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm doing
1: really great today, JP. In fact, my general practitioner says uh, I'm doing better than I deserve to be. Well,
0: I am excited to have you on the show, and I'm really excited to talk to you about leadership. Let's dive into your career journey and get some more context on how you became an expert on leadership
1: and leadership development. Gosh, I guess you could say that I've, I've been nuts about leadership my whole adult life probably goes back to playing competitive team sports as a kid. When I was 12, 13 years old, I played on a a football team that was really successful. Coach Mayberry, he was this extraordinarily ordinary guy. He just loved sports and was really committed to developing kids. He is an assistant coaches at JP. They were were blue-collar working-class guys. They didn't have a kid on the team. You know, this wasn't daddy ball. And they did three things. First, they were great at figuring out each player's unique talents and then honing that by teaching skill and technique to be better players. They were also hardcore disciplinarians. Physical conditioning was big and they pushed you to test your limits. I remember absolutely hating Coach Mayberry in our preseason workouts. We'd be, you know, doing push-ups, sit-ups, sprints, bear crawls, and he'd bark out, if you feel like dying, you're halfway there. (laughs) But I sure appreciated it on game day. We were always the more physical team. But the third thing that Coach Mayberry did was really special. He taught the team concept, how to play together with each other and for each other. Coach was older, a husky factory worker with a raspy voice. He'd be hollering out instructions and motivation all practice. and At the end, he'd break us all down to a knee and give a wrap-up. I'll never forget the night before our first game. He's down there with us on his knee, too, scanning across the group, looking straight into our eyes. And he says, boys, I don't know a lot. But I do know one thing, and he holds up his hand with all five fingers extended. and says, a team apart is easier to rip apart than a team together. Now, he, he taught us so much about teamwork and sacrificing for each other and pushing yourself. I didn't have the words for it then, JP. But looking back, those were powerful lessons in leadership. And that was when you were 12
0: or 13, it had that kind of impact on you. Well, like
1: I say, I I didn't (laughs) know I was watching leadership. I was just out playing sports with my buddies and all of that stuff. Yeah, because I feel like I was in
0: a movie right there, you know, (laughs) seeing that. I think it's so incredible you had a great coach like that. And you're right, youth sports has a huge impact. And so that's where you kind of got the bug. That's that's exactly
1: it. There's a real opportunity, especially in team sports when we're younger impressionable in that stuff. But I'll tell you, years later, with the politics of high school sports, you know, where the superintendent's kid starts, even though he's just not that good, I saw a different view of leadership. Same thing in working minimum wage jobs in high school or summer jobs to pay for college. Some bosses created a really positive atmosphere. They pushed you to be your best and reinforce the team concept. Other bosses... They were just miserable to work for. And you didn't feel like you're in it together. I've always been fascinated by people, human dynamics. So I wound up studying psychology and sociology in college. And I discovered industrial organizational psychology. I was delighted that it had a focus on leadership. And that's when it all snapped into focus. What made the difference in my early sports and early work experience? Was leadership. So I got a graduate degree in org psych and then I started working at the Center for Creative Leadership. I suppose you could say it's been all leadership all the time ever since for 26 years now.
0: Well, and I think you had an incredible experience. The Center for Creative Leadership is probably one of the premier places to be. And especially during the time you were there, so much research, so many. Really, I guess, inspirational and influential models came out of there, including really the Foundation for 70-2010 that we talk a lot about. Talk to you about some of the heroes and role models you had working at CCL and other places.
1: Heroes and role models. You know, I knew you were going to ask that question. I've been listening to the Future of HR podcast. First off, listen, I would have to say Coach Dick Mayberry was is the first hero I'd want to point out there. I gave him a copy of my first book with a little inscription about the imprint he had made on me what he taught us about two months later, I got a handwritten note saying that he'd read the book and he didn't think he taught me those things. And then he writes, but one thing I do know is that a team apart is easier to rip apart than a team together (laughs) with a little hand drawn fist. That really made my day.
0: That's great. (laughs) That's great. I know you also worked a lot with Bob Hogan. Yeah. Tell us more about how did you get to know Bob and how did he become, I guess, an important mentor, collaborator, and friend? Gosh,
1: it's really funny. You know, he he was one of my heroes when I was in graduate school. Of all the stuff I'd read, every time we get assigned one of his articles, it it just really resonated. I'm like, gosh, this guy knows what he's talking about. So check this out. One day, I'm I'm in my office, and this is 2000 or so. I get this call out of the blue. They'd say, hey, you've got a call for, from a Bob Hogan? And I'm like, okay. Put it through. I kind of thought it was a joke. And he's talking a mile of me. I'd say, hello, this is Rob. Rob Gunner, this is Bob Hogan, international 40 subject personality. You probably don't know who I am. I'm like, are you kidding? I know who you are. I've read all your stuff. And he says, well, I've written a lot of stuff. I said, yeah, I know. And I'll tell you what, that piece you put in Boston Craig's handbook on retribution as a fundamental human motive, that's the best thing you wrote. He said, I'll be. That is the best thing I wrote. This is a lot obscure chapter. It's really funny. He, he called me because he got his hands on a conference paper I had delivered showing executive personality and leadership effectiveness, and we were finding these curvilinear relationships: too little, too much of certain traits, and deteriorated performance. And he really, really liked that idea. Was fascinated by it, and we struck up this great relationship. He was really my mentor. For the first couple hmm. of years we went to debtor once jp and afterwards he'd sent me a copy of tiffany's table manners for teenagers little note he had with it he said um my man my young man you are on your way and your blue color roots are showing. read this book <laughs> which you know is kind of on the one hand you could take it as kind of ouch on the other hand, born in the 30s, old school, that greatest generation, straight no chase sort of thing. And frankly, I was the kind of young, dumb, arrogant 20 something who needed that shot upside the head to, to grow up.
0: Well, it's great because I think, I mean, you gave you developmental feedback that is missing. We need more of that. Even my experience, I look back at my career, the people who had the most difference and made the most difference in my career actually stopped and said, hey, you could do more, do better if you did this, and this is why. And I'm telling you because I care, not because I'm trying to break you down. It's the fact that you took that time to give me that feedback shows you care. I also think what's interesting, Rob, I mean, you obviously wrote a great paper that inspired him enough to say, let's call Rob and talk to him, but because you had actually read something that he actually thought was, He wrote something that was really great. You read it and said it was great. He was like, wow, this guy's paying attention. (laughs) I need to get to know Rob more because most people probably went right over that chapter and didn't realize how great he thought it was. I love that. I want to talk more about how you think about leadership and how leadership has changed since 2020. Mm. The Mm. pandemic changed a lot of things. At least we believe it's changed a lot of things. Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. But how has it changed leadership in your perspective? I think of it
1: from... Two different paradoxical perspectives, I think. First, JP, I hear the skepticism in your voice when you say, we think leadership has changed. Fundamentally, leadership is leadership is leadership. The fundamental purpose of leadership has not changed at all. It's all about persuading self-interested individuals to work together for a common cause, set aside your personal agenda and subordinate that larger cause then it's about molding them into a high-performing team and then guiding them to beat the competition. That hasn't changed. But how leaders achieve that, now now that's gotten extraordinarily more difficult. You know, the same pre-pandemic disruptors that made for a VUCA world are still in play. But the last three years have really amped up the VUCA-ness, if I can make up a word, Employees have more voice and choice, and expectations have shifted, right? This work from home, hybrid, back to office, the great resignation, the great awakening, quiet quitting. We've got all these new terms to try to explain it. But I would also add that the psyche of the workforce has been battered by three years of continuous compounding stress you know, what they were calling polycrisis at uh, Davos last month. And then also think about labor economics. Right now, JP, there's two open jobs for every person seeking one. So you got workers who are beleaguered, but they have more voice and more choice than ever. And I think that's points to two big things that have taken on greater importance in leadership recently. First, a compelling why. People want to have meaning and purpose in their work, not just cranking out widgets or helping a boss get a promotion. They want to feel that what they're doing matters. And there's also a more human touch, meeting employees where they are, recognizing them as a whole person, treating them in a way that is fair from their point of view. The IQ side of the equation still matters. Foxing the competition, smart strategy with a focus on winning over the customer, workable operating plans to deliver on the promise, and budgeting and targets aligned with the enterprise all the way across. But the EQ side, JP, that's taken on greater importance. So leadership is leadership,
0: but when you look at what's happened since 2020, <clears throat> what you're seeing is we're really requiring leaders to have more EQ, be more tuned into what's happening. If they want to be successful and have high-performing teams. That's
1: exactly right.
0: Are you seeing examples of this? Like, what are you seeing in your work yeah. in different executives and leaders?
1: Gosh, the first thing that comes to mind, JP, is the just the extraordinary popularity of empathy, right? I mean, it's become the leadership buzzword, and it's stopped the last couple of years. There's been an explosion of books and blogs and articles and podcasts on the topic last three years realized all this talk of empathy was much more well was not just another hr fad when the ceo of an 800 billion dollar investment bank told me and his, his team he said look employees are in the driver's seat and we have to show greater empathy for their concerns if we're going to survive as a firm he really meant it. but how
0: do you coach executives for greater empathy I think it's a gap for a lot of folks.
1: (laughs) Well, there's an old joke, JP. How how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know how many. Just one, but that light bulb really has to want to change. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest catalyst is feedback. If you can line up a phalanx of credible data points, leaders tend to listen. And, you know, when leaders started getting feedback after 2020, Many were quite surprised to learn how they had been viewed. Some were truly lauded and deserved to be. Others, they were shocked. And I have found that dissonance, once you work through the defensiveness, can be a powerful catalyst for change. Most people, executives included, don't want to be perceived as insensitive. Now, in, in my experience, When even the rough and tumble execs get feedback that they seem uncaring and that they make people feel demeaned or less than, they want to do something about it. But there's both the will and the way, right? So they also need some simple tools, tips, and pointers. I think back to that crazy year of 2020 with the pandemic raging and the execs I was working with at the time. Tell me... Then, and some of me even recently, that some of the most helpful kind of tips and tools I helped them with was just a little mantra check in before you check on. You know, a simple swing thought to keep in your mind, say to yourself before jumping on a call ask them how they're doing, ask them how their family is, listen to it, and then get down to business. Check in before you check on. <laughs> other thing that's really easy to coach and teach active listening it, you might be surprised or maybe not you've been around the block it seems that the higher you climb in the organizational ladder the more you talk and the less you listen <laughs> now the good ones they understand you got to flip that script but it doesn't always come naturally so i, I advise them i said listen When you're in a meeting, when you're interacting one-on-one, what have you, listen like there's going to be a test. Like at the end of this, you're going to have to repeat what was said. Sometimes, you know, speak up and paraphrase. So if I understand what you're saying, JP, it's X, Y, and Z, that sort of thing. Just basic active listening skills. Another thing that my clients found really helpful was what we called the power of the pause. Hey, before you say that, on a quick shelter, How is was it likely to land? Before you announce a big decision, have you given the appropriate heads up to all the right people? Think of the other folks a little bit before you just swing into action. Slow down just a bit and you'll go faster.
0: Some really good insights. I love check in before you check on. The other thing you talked about is no one wants to be seen as insensitive or uncaring. And you wrote this article really around the accountability crisis. And I thought it was a brilliant article because you talked about research and you're finding that two-thirds of senior managers did not want to hold people accountable, didn't want to be seen as holding people accountable in a negative way. And that was actually impacting performance negatively, not positively. So. Talk more about that accountability crisis and what you saw in your research.
1: Well, so this was pre-pandemic, right? I think we published that in Talent Quarterly 2018, something like that. And more specifically, what we found, it was less about executives didn't want to be seen this way. It was that their co-workers, especially their directs, said, hey, you're not holding people accountable enough. And you're right. The number was two out of three. Almost shocking. You think of the stereotypical table pounder master of the universe, But two out of three regarded as not holding people accountable. And when we correlated that with outcomes, we found interesting things. Of course, you would expect that execs, the less they hold people accountable, the lower their productivity and financial performance and that sort of stuff. No surprise. But the real interesting thing was it even had a big negative impact on engagement. We mm. followed that up a fair bit. We did some probing around some of these leaders and talked to some of their folks, and here's what we found: it was the star performers who were most disengaged by the lack of accountability in their manager. Right? It's, it's kind of a justice thing. It's like, hey, if you're not going to call them out and hold them accountable, I got to shoulder more of the load. And. That's very demoralizing. It'll send your star performers out the door if you don't hold that line and that standard that they hold themselves.
0: To. It's so true. And in my experience, I've seen that where a manager makes decisions, finally holds someone accountable, maybe let someone go or puts someone on a pip. And the rest of the team, when that happens, goes, Finally. Yeah. Finally you did something. Yeah. Right. Because we were they were shouldering the load. And so it's interesting because you always think about accountability, I think from a manager or leader perspective, is about Myself getting more results, with that leader getting better results—it's actually about the
1: team getting better results—is
0: yes. what you're really saying there.
1: That's exactly right. We did some great work in Denmark. My colleagues over there in Copenhagen are in real tight with several of the ministries, and, and the problem was even more stark in, in the Nordics than it was in North America with the accountability crisis. Now, but anyway, we had built and implemented this program. And what was really cool, especially working with my Scandi College, you know, that egalitarian ethos, where we landed was, we didn't even use the A word. We didn't talk about accountability. We talked about responsibility. And we came up with this little methodology called the responsibility dialogues. So it's, you know, you got a quarterly check in with, with your directs, that sort of thing. Incorporate the responsibility dialogue across the whole year. And it's really structured around. You, me, we. What are you responsible for? What do I, as your manager, what do I have to do? What am I responsible for to play a role in your success? And where's that overlap? Where do we both share the load and have to come together and make that all work? And, you know, once you frame it that way, it's less about accountability being punitive. And it's about us all being responsible to do our part for the team to succeed. That's a brilliant reframe
0: and way to bring accountability to the entire team, but more responsibility. You, me, and we, I think it is a great concept that people can apply or think about more. And one thing I admire about you, you've also built what I consider to be the best 360 feedback tool in the business, the Leadership Versatility Index. And I'm not being a commercial <laughs> for it. I just actually think it is the best on the market. And it's because it really looks at being a versatile leader yes. and talk a little more about just the model of it's what you lead and how yeah. you lead, which I think just resonates so uh, so much with me, but also my experience in really coaching people to get higher performance.
1: Yeah. First, thanks for the plug. <laughs> I thought maybe you were trying to butter me up to get us in that you me we stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, Look, well, JP, we built a really different unique 360 instrument to assess versatility. And it's it's built on three really simple ideas that can take you into complex places. First, first simple idea, the Goldilocks principle. Instead of using a standard five-point rating scale, which often assumes that if a little of a behavior is good, then a lot must be better, our scale follows the too hot, too cold, and just right idea. It ranges from degrees of too little to the right amount, and then degrees of too much. You know, that whole idea from CCL that a strength can become a weakness through overuse. Hardly any 360 assesses for the silent killer of leadership at the top, a big derailer. Second simple idea we built the tool on. Think yin and yang, where balance and harmony come from opposing but complementary forces. We apply the Goldilocks scale to a leadership model that pairs up those complementary behaviors. Like you say, at first, there's the what and the how, you know, kind of high level, those, those are complements. But within the interpersonal how, you know, your way of interacting with and influencing other people, those yin yangs are forceful, leading off your own personal and position power and enabling, including people and bringing out their best. When it comes to the organizational want, you know, the organizational issues you focus yourself and your team on, those yin yangs are zooming out to see the strategic big picture, zooming in on the operational details, how to actually implement and execute these whizzy ideas. And the third simple idea, you've actually been saying it a couple of times here, it's when you combine Goldilocks with yin and yang, get to balance leaders who do too much of certain behaviors tend to do too little of the opposing behaviors they're out of balance but the ones who can strike these balances and how they lead and, and what they lead they're the versatile ones
0: and i love the concept of versatile leaders it's so important when you think about where we're at today we have to all toggle most of us are player coaches We have to be strategic, we have to be operational. You've got to get the best out of your people, but you have to push them to get deadlines. Mm -hmm. It's it's not easy to be a leader. And I feel like in some ways, I guess the question, Rob, is how often do you see people who are truly versatile in your research? Is this a little bit of a unicorn, purple squirrel, that there's just that many leaders that aren't that way? Or is this something you really can develop?
1: Well, I think there's two separate questions there. Can you develop is one question. Are they purple squirrels is another question. (laughs) You know, I don't think they're unicorns and and purple squirrels, but they're cousins. And I say that for this reason. Truly versatile leaders, they are rare. In the 25 years that we've been at this, JP, we find that fewer than 10% meet our criteria for true versatile leadership, getting that force on enabling balance right as well as the strategic and operational balance. It's rare.
0: And so if it's that rare, then is it more about progress towards being more versatile versus actually ever
1: getting there? Absolutely it is, is. The goal is progress or better, not perfection. Perfection's an elusive thing to keep chasing. And I'll say, look, people ask me, can everyone be a truly versatile leader? And I say, no, I don't think so. And our know, marketing people give me a hard time when I say that. But the truth of the matter is it's really hard work. It's really hard work to learn all the different leadership lessons and put them all together in that stuff. But here's what I'll say, JP. While not every leader may be able to become truly versatile, the data show and my practice shows and colleagues who use this stuff, it can be taught, it can be coached to improve your degree of versatility. It's not black or white. And here's the thing, increasing your range and breadth of capabilities, just a little bit can have a huge payoff. We did a study of folks who had been assessed twice on this instrument, usually about a year and a half, two years apart on average. And here's what we find. If you work with a highly skilled coach, you can improve that versatility by half a letter grade, you know, from a B minus to a solid B plus say. But here's the interesting thing. Even that amount of change and the slightly lower change that you see with folks who don't have the support, like a great coach, they tend to improve a little bit too. And even those little bits of change can move most from around the 50th percentile and engagement and productivity, team agility, all that stuff to 65, 65th percentile. I mean, that's that's a big move. And, and, and here's the main thing I try to emphasize, you know. <laughs> Quick aside, I used to read comic books and in the 70s, 80s. They had this little ad in the back. Hey, learn to play guitar in seven days. It's easy. JP, I learned to play guitar. It wasn't easy. And here's the thing. You're not going to become a versatile leader could You go to a training program. Heck, if they hire me to be your coach, I'm not going to get you all the way to the kingdom. But development is accumulative, Right and like a process of accretion if you keep working at this stuff every 2 or 3 years you can dial your versatility up a couple of percentage points by the end of that career say when you're at the top the stakes are the highest and the jobs the hardest pulling you in all different directions well that's how you that's how you prepare yourself one step at a time over time there's no quick fix
0: yeah. No quick fix. But why is versatility so rare? Rob, talk a little bit more about that. Is it Are people born with versatility? <laughs> Do they develop it? Is there certain personality traits that just happen to have it? What's your research show well, there?
1: Well, first off, that was one of the big lessons I learned from starting my career at the Center for Creative Leadership. Leaders are made. No one is born with all the skills, behaviors, and perspectives it requires. But leadership is really, really hard. Yet these things are all learnable. I think of versatility as, as a meta-competency, JP. And we've got a Bob Hogan and I have a new article in Harvard Business Review on this coming out next month. Look, here's what I mean by a meta-competency. It's not just another competency in a long list, it sits above all of those. So first, you have to learn all the specific competencies. We all gravitate to what comes natural. But you have to go against the grain to develop complementary skills and competencies to learn these unnatural skills and behaviors through diverse, novel, and adverse, challenging job assignments that take you out of the comfort zone. There's no learning in the comfort zone and no comfort in the learning zone. (laughs) For instance, developing strategic skills, vision, innovation, business savvy, financial acumen, how to gain competitive advantage. The fact is, a great many managers are not exposed to these sorts of challenges until they get their first PL role. So, how can we expect them to be great strategists when they've been tactical doers, not strategic thinkers for the first 15, 20 years of their career? But now, next is the hard part. You have to figure out how to behave in seemingly contradictory ways in a way that feels natural, authentic, and paradoxically consistent. You have to reconcile and integrate these the opposing different ways of leading in your own unique brand. A lot of this comes down to mindset and identity, you know, the story you tell yourself about who you are.
0: So the experience is a great teacher. And I want to repeat what you said, I think is one of the, maybe the best quote of today. No learning in the comfort zone, no comfort in the learning zone. And I think that's how I live my career, but I think when you think about experiences, it's so important to raise your hand mm. to get new experiences. If you're a next-gen HR leader, get that first HR business partner role, get into a COE role, maybe get into a line role, right? And for business leaders, you're right. The first time they actually have the ownership of that p they're going to be hit with things they've never seen before. Yes. And so you're learning as you go. So maybe give yourself some grace when you're trying to be versatile because it's a long journey to be versatile. It sounds like I'll be really great when I'm on my uh, retirement age. I'll be very versatile by then. (laughs) What else are you doing in the meantime? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Just this podcast. Maybe give us an example of this. I know you've got some really good examples in your career of coaching folks who are trying to be more versatile. I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Let me give you an example that really gets at that mindset piece we mentioned a moment ago, kind of your, your identity, how you see yourself, that sort of stuff. Because, I mean, that personal work and leadership development, is so the hardest work of all. So I've got this former client. Let's call him Rick, right? Executive vice president in charge of a big chunk of a global corporation. He was a <laughs> former Division One college athlete, you know, six foot four, broad shoulders, still very fit, jutting jaw, booming voice, the whole place. Well, he saw himself as a real tough guy, JP. And he had a bad attitude about, quote, people oriented leadership. He'd refer to that as, you know, namby pamby, go along to get along, don't stick your neck out for nothing sort of leadership. <laughs> and naturally, his, his stakeholder feedback was that he could be too forceful and not enough in peopleing of others. In fact, he could be downright disabling in some ways. So about three months into our coaching, after his feedback and assessment, it all started to sink in with Rick. He proudly announced to me one day at the start of one of our sessions, he says, Hey, you know, Rob, the soft stuff is the hardest stuff of all in leadership, and I can do hard stuff. From conversations, being challenged, he seemed to turn this over in his mind enough to finally find a way to relate to the soft stuff. He come to no longer see it in such pejorative terms, but you know something he could envision himself doing in a way that was genuine and authentic. He could he could envision a better version of himself that he could believe in and aspire to. I guess you could say he gave himself permission in a way to broaden his repertoire and add a new set of skills and behaviors to expand his leadership range. But here's the thing: he wasn't just behaving. He was being
0: different. You have to change your behavior and your attitudes to get that full transformation. The other thing it sounds like he did is he went against conventional wisdom that's out there a lot today in HR land, which is focus on your strengths. <laughs> keep working on your strengths. You know, that's, hey, it's all you need to do is keep working on that. You're really good at that. You're really good at communications. Keep communicating. You're really operational. Be more operational, which is, kind of not the best advice. Talk more about what you know about focusing on your strengths and why that may not be the most successful strategy.
1: The strengths thing first popped up 20 years ago. You know, The message was don't waste time trying to fix weaknesses. The only way to achieve greatness is to play to your strengths. And the proponents of this this point of view, they declared a revolution. And the message got, you know, retweeted, so to speak. I guess Twitter wasn't around yet, but you know, USA Today ran a headline. Excellence comes from maximizing strengths, never by fixing weaknesses. Fortune said, you know, when training is remedial, it's a waste of time. But, you know, all of that really flew in the face of what I was learning about really executives and what distinguishes the best from the rest. Big insights I took away from CCL, like we said, leaders are made, not born. And the best leaders know what to do, even when they don't know what to do. Really successful executives' careers are defined, like you were saying, by a variety of jobs and work experiences that require learning skills and behaviors that don't come naturally to them. You learn in the deep end, not in the safe shallow. What do you mean by the deep end, Rob? And simply put, out of your comfort zone again. You know? The best leaders. This goes back to the great stuff that was going on CCL4. I was there. We kept finding it too in our work. The best leaders had zigged and zagged across different functions and business units, even industries and organizations. They had more expat assignments. They often intentionally took stretch assignments into high-stakes, high-visibility roles for which they weren't quite yet prepared. They also worked for, with, and led a variety of diverse people with different backgrounds, perspectives, and demographics. And their penchant for systematic learning enabled them to accumulate hard-won lessons of experience and add on new skills and capabilities. They didn't play to their strengths. JP, they built new ones and the ability to continue to acquire more new
0: ones. Yeah, strengths-based movement sounds pretty uh, sexy and easy. It's sort of like seven-minute abs (laughs) is all I need to get in shape. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) feels good, right, to focus on your strengths, because I'm not pushing myself in the comfort zone. So what are your biggest criticisms of the strengths work for leaders?
1: Well, first, let me be really, really clear here. There are some good techniques in that strengths tradition. But as a paradigm for developing leaders, it's dangerously incomplete, JP. Here's the first beef I have with the way it's typically talked about and applied. Weaknesses matter. You can't ignore them. The job requirements of leadership are not elective, and if managers can't or won't perform them, organizational performance will suffer. Creative big picture thinker must be able to translate that vision into realistic operating plans with specifics about resources, responsibilities, timelines, how we're going to execute. Natural collaborator who can bring people together to pool their insights, talk things through, also needs to be able to cut the discussion off and make the call. You've got to be able to do both these things and ignoring the weaknesses is not a really good idea. The usual solution, the the quick fix answer to that, promoted by these uh, advocates of the strengths approach, they say, well, staff around your weaknesses. Find a complimentary person that can do that. But play this one out, JP, and you can see the limited applicability. I mean, how well can the creative visionary communicate with trust and empower the detailed, practical, and literal thinking operator? It's kind of arranged corporate marriages are really hard to get right. It might work, but it requires a great deal of mutual respect and effort, which is why these sorts of things often fail. But more to the point, this solution doesn't even apply to many required leadership skills. I mean, look, the primary reason for executive derailment is relationship How realistic is it to appoint someone else the role of soothing the bruised feelings left in the wake of a clever business thinker who's great with analysis and the hard side of management, but is also abrasive and weak on the people side? Ignoring those weaknesses is both a lethal career strategy and just a poor way to manage talent.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. You've got to look at where you can get better Mm. and focus on that and embrace that. And saying, hey, I want to get a little bit better each day on this. I don't need to be world class, but I got to get to average <laughs> potentially, right? Or I'm gonna minimally be, competent, right? Minimally, yeah, minimally competent is a better way to spray than average. But exactly, you've got to get a little farther along. Rob, you also said one. Do you have other criticisms or thoughts that maybe people typically aren't thinking about when they think about the strengths based movement?
1: Very few of the folks talking about strengths and a notable exception is Alex Lindley over at the Center for Applied Positive Psychology in the UK. He acknowledges this, but very few others do, which is the fact that a strength can be a mixed blessing, right? We mentioned this touched on earlier. One of the key insights from studies of what gets executives off track is that, you know, perverse irony that the very same things that got them to the top many times are the exact same thing that take them over the edge. As the saying goes, strengths become weaknesses. And, you know, great examples. We all know this one, the technical expert who knows a whole lot and is very deep but gets lost in the weeds. Or the hard charger who just comes on too strong. JP, you name a strength, and I'll name you an executive who overdoes it.
0: I think that's why you've got to be really self-aware and continue to think about how do I round myself out, right, to get minimally competent in other areas and not over-rely on those strengths. talk about playing to strengths can inhibit leadership development. Are there other opportunities or other examples you want to share around that?
1: Well, you know, that, that would be my third beef, really, is this whole idea that, that if you follow it through, if you apply what the strengths folks are encouraging to do, to you know, put yourself in a position to neutralize your weaknesses, staff around them, focus on your strengths, all that sort of stuff. It flies right in the face of one of the biggest insights we know today about great executive leadership and how you become a great leader. Continuous learning and the ability to deal with the unknown, the untested, and untried probably the secret to long-term success, especially in an ever-shifting, disruptive world like we're in today. But playing to strengths is better suited to a static world than a dynamic world. Repeatedly assigning someone to jobs that call for their strengths, like sending them a fix-it manager only into turnaround situations, it robs them of the opportunity to branch out and learn how to lead in other circumstances. Like we've been talking about, most development, 70, 20, 10, right? Most of it comes from work experience. And the most effective senior enterprise leaders have had the most diverse careers, stumbled and fumbled their way through hardship and come out on the other side as a broader, more capable, more versatile leader. Playing the strengths might have some short-term advantage. You capitalize on deep expertise that turn around artists, but it misses the golden opportunity to build a future ready So, look, my take is that there are good strengths, tools, and techniques to add to your professional toolbox as a development pro, but that they should sit in that kit right alongside the other tools and techniques that we know are useful for developing future-ready leaders. Leave the movements and the revolutions to those gurus, JP. The really hard work of developing versatile leadership takes place far away from the sensational headlines.
0: I think building a future-ready leader is really what a lot of HR organizations are really trying to focus on. And to your point, the world is unpredictable. It's changing. The jobs that existed today didn't exist 10 years ago. So I think that's probably the biggest argument to say, sure, embrace your strengths, but also double down on your weaknesses and opportunities to get better.
1: I've been watching this field for two and a half decades, and the latest hot thing comes along, and the pendulum swings, and we glom onto that, you know, for instance, empathy. But like you were talking about earlier, how about accountability? Can we do both? And it, it seems that in modern discourse, we've lost that subtlety or sophistication to hold both ideas in our mind and still be able to function with one another.
0: Right, the tyranny of the and or or. Yes, Jim Collins, that's right. That's right. Yes. Rob, final question for you. What's one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR in the next
1: five to ten years? I would say business relevant. What do you mean by business relevant? Well, you know, supporting the business strategy with people's solutions to business problems. The more aligned HR and talent leaders are with the line leaders running the business, the deliverables they're on the line for, the better those people's solutions will tend to be. I'll tell yeah. you this. I know Jim Shannon and Mark Efron run their TMI, Talent Management Institute, program. It's over just down the road from where I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. They have me over every now and then to I do a piece on assessment and whatnot. Well, they do this interesting thing where they ask the class full of HR talent management pros. What was your company's EBITDA last year? It is shocking how few of them have a clue. It's even more shocking how many ask what EBITDA is. So if I had any advice for the future of HR, focus on business relevance.
0: Rob Kaiser, thank you so much. Business relevance and being a versatile leader. We've learned a lot today. Thank you for coming and sitting down and being on the future of HR.
1: Well, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me, JP. Thank you so much for
0: listening to this episode of Future of HR Podcast. Thanks again to Rob for sharing his insights on versatility and why it's so important for leaders to be versatile and also focus on improving their weaknesses, not their strengths. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with Damon Porter, who is CHO at Grange Insurance. In our conversation, Damon and I will discuss his path to the C-suite and his mission to help people find their purpose, meaning, and bring their authentic self to work. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.